So uh, welcome to Left Out, reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM. I'm uh, Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. Uh, we're examining the news from a point of view that is usually left out of the mainstream media. Uh, the show, uh, we're, we're um, uh, uh, happy to, uh, to acknowledge that we're being produced today by Jay Kutruba. And as usual, we're, uh, we're our, our uh, listeners are welcome to call the program. I'm a little discombobulated today. I got uh, we're on the air quick more quickly than I thought at four one two two six eight nine seven two eight. And uh, or you can also send mail to email to bob at leftout.info. Or if you like, join the AOL chat room left out during the show, and we can uh, chat during uh, during the program if you prefer to communicate with us this way. But certainly feel free to call in at two six eight nine seven two eight. Uh, announcements, please. Danny. So we we have one announcement today, which is that uh, this Thursday, the fifteenth, is the Merton Center Award Dinner, uh, and the uh, recipient of the award this year is Cindy Sheehan. She'll be there to accept the award um, in the evening. It's a it's a, a social hour at six o'clock, dinner at seven thirty, and uh, at the Station Square. Uh, you can contact the Merton Center for information about how to get tickets. The number there is four one two. Three six one three zero two two, or go to uh, thomasmertoncenter.org for more information. At Cindy Sheehan this Thursday um, at, at the Sheraton Station Square Hotel. So uh, we have a guest today on Left Out. It's uh, John C. Bogle, who is the founder and former CEO of the Vanguard Group. His latest book is The Battle for the Soul of Capitalism. And uh, I've began hearing about uh, John Bogle uh, not too long ago, but um, really what I heard about him resonated with my own views, and so I wanted to get him on the show. And uh, he's also written this book, which is an excellent book, and we wanted to, it brings up a lot of topics to talk about. John, are you on the phone right now? No. Not yet. Okay. Well, <clears throat> we'll we're waiting for the producers. So <clears throat> we'll we can discuss it briefly then before we get uh, John Bogle on the line. Yeah. So many of our listeners will uh, will recognize John Bogle's name uh, as the as 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 Danny said a moment ago as the uh, founder of the Vanguard Group, which is a I think the second largest mutual fund uh, or uh, group in the uh, company in the world uh, that controls something like a trillion dollars. And I guess I should mention uh, by way of uh, full disclosure that pretty much all of my assets, as meager as they are, are uh, held by the Vanguard Group. So maybe that's uh, listeners may may like to take that into account. But John Bogle, I think, is retired from from the Vanguard now, uh, and has been uh, going around actually giving a number of uh, speeches, appearing on television programs, and promoting his book, um, which we are hoping to discuss with him today as soon as we can uh, get him on on the line. Uh, one of the things that's interest, interesting about there are many things that are interesting about the book, but the uh, and I will will take the opportunity to have uh, Mr. Bogle uh, summarize it for us. But I've been reading it over the last two days, and the thing that uh, is for me refreshing is to see someone who uh, represents, I would say, the uh, very very much represents the the, uh, the highest levels of achievement in some respect in capitalist uh, in capitalism in the U.S. Who has uh, founded a very huge and successful corporation and is very much involved in buying and selling stocks on the market? Who has a perspective on what has been happening in the business world in the U.S. Uh, that I think is uh, to me initially was surprising and very refreshing to read. Uh, so, do we have uh, uh, John Bogle on the line now? Are you there, uh, John? Mr. Mr. Bogle? Uh, yes, I am. Oh, hi. Good. Welcome to Left Out. This is uh, Bob Harper speaking. 
Hi, Bob. I'm Danny Slater. Danny, how are you? And we were just introducing your book over the last couple of days. I've read your book called uh, The Battle for the Soul of Capitalism, which I just a moment ago was saying I found to be uh, very refreshing and exciting uh, in many respects. And and I must say, maybe uh, call me naive, but even a little surprising to come from someone who uh, has spent a life in the business world, who one could describe, I think, uh, fairly as a capitalist, who has been in charge of a trillion dollars worth of funds or thereabouts. Uh, and so... And yet I find that um, uh, some of your views uh, aren't uh, what I've often been hearing over the last couple of years from, uh, from many, uh, many people in public life. So I wonder if you could start out by, by summarizing some of your main points. Uh, sure, I'd be glad to. And first, as to uh, whether uh, I'm in the mainstream or not, <laughs> uh, I'm not in the mainstream. Let me be clear on that. Uh, uh, one Wall Streeter said of me, not, uh, not uh, particularly um, happily, uh, that my uh, standards of ethics are somewhat outside of the mainstream, <laughs> uh, and indeed they are. That could be good or bad. Uh, uh, well, I, I'm not <laughs> happy good. with mine. It's the other guys, I'm not so happy about. <laughs> and uh, what the book is, and I, I, I mean, I've tried for a, a long career. I've been in this business for almost 58 years, and even longer if you count the time I spent uh, studying it. Two more years studying it. Uh, when I wrote my thesis on it at Princeton University, beginning in 1949, mm. so it's. Uh, I'm not a newcomer to it, uh, but I've always prided myself, I think, on trying to see what the reality is, not to deceive myself, not to deceive anybody else. Uh, uh, as Robert Burns says, I would our God our gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us. <laughs> and uh, so that I try and see this industry as an outsider would see this industry. And by, and by industry, I'm talking not only about the mutual fund industry, but the whole financial service industry. And to summarize in a... In a in a fairly simple way, in the last uh, 25 or so years, 30 years maybe, of the 20th century, uh, we, we, we've witnessed a really a profound change in capitalism. And the way I describe it in the book is a change from traditional owner's capitalism, where the benefits of capital investment goes to those who put up the capital, uh, the shareholders should be served first, to a new form of capitalism. Uh, I call it in the book a pathological mutation to a new form of capitalism, in which uh, we have managers' capitalism now, and which uh, uh, corporations and financial institutions both uh, seem to be run to benefit the managers uh, more than the shareholders who put up the money. Uh, in the mutual fund industry, it's quite clear that uh, uh, the more the managers take, the less the investors w make. Uh, and a central theme of the investment part of the book, it's partly about corporate America, one-third about corporate America, one-third about investment America, and one-third about mutual fund America. And uh, in each of those sections, I've got uh, try and uh, lay down the claim or, or, or attack the claim that it's just a few bad apples, and I list nine or ten or bad apples in, in each chapter in, in each of those three sections. And then a whole list of companies who, while they aren't identified as bad apples, uh, have done things that shouldn't be done in this world. Uh, one of the themes of the book is we've moved from a society, and a particularly a financial society and a capitalist society, where there were some things that one simply did not do to a society as I see it, where the rule is now, if everybody else is doing it, I can do it in that too. So that means uh, uh, CEO salaries, if everybody else is getting excessively paid, by God, I want my share of it. And mutual fund managers, if everybody else has higher fees and is making more money or is sold out to, to a financial conglomerate for more money, uh, then, I, uh, then I ought to be able to 
you know, get into that, too. I, I, it's a greed issue, really, and one that disappoints me greatly, uh, because the last-line shareholders have put up the capital, whether through mutual funds or through direct ownership of corporations, um, the last-line shareholders are basically at the bottom of the food chain, and they should be at the top of the food chain. So uh, starting with uh, one of your points uh, in terms of corporate America, a very topical uh, issue is uh, CEO re- reimbursement, CEO salaries, or other forms of reimbursement. And I guess uh, I, what, what you always hear is, well, this is a free market. They are participating in a free market, so whatever they get paid is what they're worth, aren't they? Well, people use that argument, and they compare our CEOs with our athletes, who I must say, when you think of A-Rod, the great Rodriguez, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> It seems like maybe our CEOs aren't paying quite enough. But think of the difference. Uh, the, the athletes are paid by the people that are filling the seats. Uh, they're paid by the principals. If, if, uh, you know, if A-Rod and George Steinbrenner can't get together, well, do, we, do you or I give a damn, for the want of a better expression, whether A-Rod gets the money or George Steinbrenner does? It's an arm's-length deal. It's, uh, anything goes. If Michael Jackson can fill the seats, I guess he doesn't do that anymore. Who are we to say that he should give everybody that buys a $100 seat back $25? It's, it's, the, it's the public paying for the seats, and it's the principal who, who uh, owns the team uh, that is paying the money. When you go over to corporate America, it's not the principals, the stockholders, P-A-L-S in this case, the stockholders who are paying those CEOs. It's their, it's, it's their agents, the directors. And the directors have a close relationship with the CEO. They think he's kind of wonderful. Uh, we do all these surveys uh, that, that uh, have a t- tremendous ratchet effect. You know, if your CEO is in the, in the uh, fourth quartile, this wonderful man who sits at the top of the board table, that's another issue, which I'll talk about in a second, but he sits at the head of the board table and he's running your company and he's brilliant and he's nice and he has a lovely wife and children that need to go to college. Uh, he's certainly as good as that other guy, so let's move him up to the first quartile. And guess what happens? Somebody else falls into the fourth quartile. So the same thing happens over and over again. Uh, the directors, at the, I, I think I used the phrase, the, the, the sentence in the book, it's amazing how cheap something is, including a CEO's salary, if you can buy it with other people's money. Uh, we've lost that. Uh, Adam Smith warned us about it. Uh, that we that we don't watch over the property we take care of for others with the same care that we watch over our own property. It's an age-old problem. But the analogy just fails when you compare CEO salaries with entertainers' salaries or athletes' salaries yeah, uh, yeah. Or, or Hollywood star salaries. The other issue that, that I thought uh, the concern I consider also is that they they, say, they they argue that well this person is making decisions that that could make the company you know hundreds of billions of dollars, um, but what happens if they make a decision that lose the company $100 million? They don't have to pay that out of their own pocket. Well, so the whole right. comparison is Therein lies a great, uh, a great story, and that is a, a great way to explain this. Uh, over the last 25 years, as I point out in the book, these CEOs have told our, our financial services, our brokers and so on, investment bankers, that, uh, Morgan Stanley does a study of this, and they ask for how much... Earnings growth do you think you'll get over the next five years? And they do it year after year after year, looking ahead five years. On average, these CEOs predicted their earnings would grow at 11% a year. In fact, they grew at 6% a year. In an economy that grew at 6.25% a year. So on average, (laughs) they aren't even average. So the point you're making, and it's a very good point, is let's pay the guys 
that are turning in the above-average results, above-average pay, but let's penalize the guys or at least give them no incentives and finally, I suppose, fire them if they're turning in below-average returns over the long term. Not And another point which I'm going to make here, it's not quite what you asked about, but we've also fallen into this real trap of thinking that paying somebody on the basis of getting the stock price up is, is adding shareholder value. Mm. That's an evanescent, temporary thing. You know, raising the stock price is a picnic. Fooling or a fool around with the accounting, change the depreciation schedule, uh, give some favorable reports to a few analysts, uh, get them talking about it. Maybe you talk to Jim Cramer and have, a, have him <laughs> plug it on CNBC, uh-huh. and the stock price goes up. It's difficult to raise, extremely difficult in the extreme, to raise the intrinsic value of the corporation. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've been a CEO, I guess, for something like 40 years, a long, long time. Uh, and uh, I'm just a little tiny unit now, I admit. Uh, but uh, I can't tell you how difficult it is to raise the intrinsic value of a company. It takes real work. It doesn't take financial engineering. It takes commitment by the people that you're leading. It takes marketing and product development. It takes innovation. It takes technology. It's hard work. And yet the hard work is measured by the share of profits that you turn in for the economy, not the price of the stock. And yet we pay these CEOs the price of the stock and on the basis of the price of the stock. And guess what happens when their time to exercise their options come? They sell the stock. <laughs> yes. And guess who buys it back at those high prices? You and I. Often the company itself. Oh. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Really? <laughs> yeah. They Well, see, the, 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 the corporations... The large corporations you know, don't want to dilute their earnings by having more shares outstanding oh. as they, when they issue these options. So when the executives, they're selling them in the market, that doesn't change the, the shares outstanding. It raises the number of shares outstanding. Uh, so that it, after a while, it would be obvious you're giving huge percentages of the company away. So the company buys the stock back in its own treasury. Mm-hmm. So the CEO basically, indirectly, and sometimes directly, actually, buying the stock back from the CEOs who sell it, at a high price. There, there was even a situation where companies were loaning CEOs money to do the purchase, and then they would just pay the difference, right? The, yeah, the, that <laughs> uh, that has actually been uh, been banned by I think Sarbanes-Oxley. Right, but not that but long. Believe ago. me, they'll figure out a way to make it work anyway. Well, what, but but what, what I, want, I wanted to make make a comment here, which is that another consequence of these really really obscene, and I'll use that word you know very carefully because I, I believe won't it, challenge. I it. believe it is obscene these these kinds of compensation packages is that, in fact, that it allows a situation where the, the CEO can actually commit corporate suicide by making decisions which are very short-term and, and g- g- look good on the books but, and cause the stock to go up. He or she then sells out the shares, making, say, $100 million, and then leaves the, leaves the carcass behind, a rotting carcass. It's just, is that, and I, and there is, aren't there examples of that as well? Yeah, it's hard to put your finger on the exact, any particular exact example where it happens in that extreme way, but you are absolutely right. I mean, think about it. When companies downsize, well, I'm not allowed to say downsizing anymore. When companies right-size, as corporate <laughs> America tells us, mm-hmm. they're firing people, often people who have been spent their whole lives giving loyalty and commitment to the corporation, and losing that talent. Uh, when you get that expense out, up go the earnings for the short term. I want to emphasize only for the short term. And therefore, up goes the CEO's bonus. He makes more money if he's tougher on his staff in terms of um, financial terms. Now, the less he gives them as a group, 
the more he makes himself. It's a little bit extreme comment on my part, but not too. And to, to make matters worse, we don't have any idea about how much these CEOs are really paid. Uh, they have termination pay that's out of the sight. Uh, they get the use of the company aircraft. I think uh, Mr. Rubin of Citicorp wasn't even a, uh, anything but a director and maybe chairman of the executive committee. Got $500,000 worth of free airline travel a few years ago. I mean, that's a lot mm. of money to give somebody who's making $17 million a year. Wouldn't you think he could pay for his own airline travel? No, it's outrageous. I, and then I, guess what? It's going to get worse. I don't want to ruin your day. <laughs> but but these, uh, my understanding in some of the press reports I've read, these recent two CEOs got fired. Well, they got these big bonuses. But the board felt kind of badly about that because people have to pay taxes on those bonuses. <laughs> so why don't we pay the taxes for the CEO? Yes. And they do. And then, of course, keep with me. We have an iteration here. Then they've got to pay taxes on the money they got to pay the taxes. <laughs> so it turns out that when you read somebody got $20 million, I think the number, and that's probably too low a number to use, when you read somebody got a severance package of $100 million, it turns out the cost $180 million. From the company. paying the taxes mm. on it. And then there's also, I mean, even before separation, there's, there's off, you often hear about uh, op- stock options being repriced, for example, priced downward uh, for the benefit of uh, executives in the company. I mean, you almost think there's no limit to what's going on here. <laughs> well, I would say I do think there is <laughs> no going on here. Well, I, I so what know. I wonder well, is 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 how is this possible though? Because after all, um, aren't the isn't the uh, the board of trustees is typically owners of the company, or at, at any rate represent the owners of the company? So how is it how is it possible that this kind of thing can really go on? Well, that brings me to another point, uh, and that is, and it's a fairly subtle point that I haven't seen discussed anywhere. Uh, the number of owners of the company is a vanishing number. Uh, uh, in 1950, for example, uh, 92% of all the stock of all the corporations in America was owned by what you and I would call owners, individual investors. And 8% was owned by financial institutions. Today, 70% of all the stock in America is owned by financial institutions, largely mutual funds and corporate and, uh, and state and local pension plans. Uh, and to some, ex- some extent, particularly in recent years, university endowments. Uh, the, these owners are passive owners. Uh, so as a, to, to quote one sentence from my book, if I may, because I was quoting yes, someone please. else in the book, when you have strong managers, and these CEOs are strong people, uh, CEOs almost invariably are, when you have weak directors who have some power but they hesitate to use it, and when you have passive owners, don't be surprised when the looting begins. And that's the situation we have. Strong managers, these CEOs who have filled this vacuum in leadership, uh, weak directors who have power, but they were put on the board usually by the CEO. Uh, they see the CEO. They want to be nice people. Uh, and passive owners, uh, think of the mutual fund. Think of this. Uh, you, you would think that maybe investors would stand up to the plate these institutional investors, I mean, God knows they have power undreamed of right. uh, by individual investors because it's very concentrated. I believe the number in the book is the largest 25 financial institutions, 25 now, of all those financial institutions, own something like 40% of all the stock in America. Well, look, if you're a 40% stockholder and you dash into GE and tell Jack Welsh when he was there <laughs> uh, 
to shape up. I'm not going to give you any more money. He would shape up, and he wouldn't get any more money. Uh, but the owners are passive. There is, as far as I know, I, I say this in the book, not one single instance in the history of the mutual fund industry, or certainly in the modern history of the mutual fund industry, where a mutual fund has proposed to add a, a question in a corporate proxy where the management opposed putting that question in the proxy. Not one. So, and so, there are thousands of mutual funds owning thousands and thousands of companies, so, and we can't find an example. So then I, then, then I must ask then, uh, since I have John, John Bogle on the line here, uh, wh- wh- why not? I mean, uh, you were the head of Vanguard for, uh, what, for 40-something years, 50 years? Yep. And, uh, and so wh- why didn't you? Uh, okay, well, that's actually a really good question <laughs> and, uh, and, and quite appropriate. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm a little bit going to tell you that I was wrong and a little bit going to tell you the times changed. In other words, we did not have this abuse in compensation uh, up to the time I left Vanguard. We did not have these crazy mergers taking place that we could have voted against. We did not have these awesome issues of stock options. The, the issues that were placed on the proxy then were, by and large, uh, what we call social responsibility issues. Uh, both to, that uh, IBM, for example, is not allowed, can no longer do business in South Africa. It was a very typical uh, kind of phase. And frankly, I, my own personal view was those decisions should be left to the corporation and not to the stockholders. So we either withheld our votes or did not vote for them. Uh, so uh, on the other hand, I could have, and I'm the first one to say, I should have done more. Uh, and I probably should have come to this table a little earlier than when I finally started to raise cane about it, which is about 1988 or 1999. I should tell you also that at Vanguard, we didn't just, uh, you know, ignore the proxies. Uh, actually, the, we voted the proxies every year. We owned far fewer numbers of individual stocks then. And uh, and the the actual person that did the work on looking at the proxies and decided what issues we should take a position on actually reported directly to me. So I, I am by no means blameless in this issue. I want to be very clear on that. I should have done more. But times have changed, and now it's irresponsible not to be doing more. And I would, I would be like, I could not stand by today and do that. So one of the things that I, I, <clears throat> I used to dabble in stocks myself, uh, but then I decided that, well, it really wasn't, I wasn't going to be able to compete with the mutual funds who had, you know, much, much faster, you know, uh, information, much teams of analysts, computers, everything. So I just uh, put all my money in various mutual funds and, uh, but they're the one. They're in a much better position to make these kinds of decisions than an individual shareholder who can't spend his or her life doing the research and looking into the CEO and seeing through the machinations of the financial statements and, and all that. Well, that brings up a really tough question, and that is, uh, or a question that's very hard to answer: What accounts for this passivity? Why aren't mutual funds standing up? For the oh, their last line owners, the people that own mutual fund shares and representing their interests in corporate America. Uh, first answer is they hate it. Several years ago, they, they they don't want to raise their profile. This is a marketing business now, not a management business. The mutual fund business, and it's bad marketing to have a profile. If you go after GM on some proxy issue, well, probably half your shareholders will think you're doing the right thing, and half will think you're doing the wrong thing. So they'll be alienated. Uh, and, and so it's not popular to do that. It's a, it's a no-win kind of issue to do that in a marketing business. So we, we don't do it in part for that reason. Uh, we also don't do it because guess what? 
who are the clients in the fastest growing part of the mutual fund business? They're the very corporations whose shares are held in our portfolios. We are we in the mutual fund and pension business, and I should say more than parenthetically, that they're pretty much the same business now. None of the major mutual fund firms, all of the major mutual fund firms are in the pension business, management business, and all of the major pension fund firms are in the mutual fund business. But using mutual funds as the example, a few years ago the Securities and Exchange Commission had the temerity to suggest that mutual funds should tell their own owners, the owners of these stocks, uh, their principals, if you will, P-A-L-S again, um, how they voted their shares. The mutual fund industry, I guess, thought it was the end of the world to disclose to their own owners how they voted the shares that they owned. Hmm. And fortunately, um, uh, on this one, I, I definitely took the SEC side, not the industry side, but the industry stood pretty much as one against disclosing uh, how we vote our proxies. The SEC stood firm in spite of that barrage from corporate American, mutual fund Americans, so but now we have to disclose votes. And that has, not surprisingly, made mutual funds more uh, active in voting and not necessarily more aggressive, but thinking through and before they decide to vote on issues that are there. It has not yet made them into more uh, activist investors. In other words, we're still not seeing any proxy proposals. It's hard to believe other than mutual funds don't want to offend their clients. Well, there's this wonderful expression. I think it's in the books. The problem is not you just don't want to offend your own clients. The problem is there are two kinds of clients no mutual fund manager wants to offend. Actual clients <laughs> and potential clients. Right. And that's everybody in corporate America. And so through these 401k plans that mutual funds are advisors to, which the company bears some subtle influence over how we vote their shares, uh, it's very subtle, I'm sure, and through the pension plans where the company actually has the right to vote the shares in its own pension plan, uh, Corporate America, in a certain respect, influences or even controls itself. Uh, I, I recently estimated, I'm not sure this is the same number that's in the book, I think I used about a 35% number, but it now looks to me like 40% of the stock, uh, all the stock outstanding in the U.S., is, is either held in corporate pension plans or held in corporate 401k plans for the, where the, the, uh, the management of the corporation has great potential um, clout. So it's coming along not very well. And moreover, uh, as you mentioned in your book, uh, many of the mutual fund companies, although not Vanguard, are themselves publicly held corporations. Well, that's the amazing thing about it. Of the 40 largest mutual fund companies, 30 of them are held by financial conglomerates, so we own ourselves. They own the mutual fund companies, too. <laughs> I mean, this is a mess. Uh, I can't say it any differently. Yeah. And the only way we're going to straighten it out well, I have two recommendations for straightening out, if I have just a minute here. Oh, yeah, please. Uh, way number one is the way that's probably acceptable uh, to most people in business, uh, and that is, in, or most capitalists, if you will, have the investors look after their own economic interest. If investors were educated to the kind of things the cost mutual funds have, they're incredibly short-term time horizons. Most mutual funds are speculators. Managers are speculators. They turn over their portfolios on average 100% a year. That's speculation. Uh, they have high costs. They have big front-end sales loads. If investors would wise up and buy funds with low cost, uh, funds that bought and held instead of speculated, 
funds actually engaged in long-term investing, uh, funds with low expense ratios and obviously low portfolio turnover costs, very broadly diversified, they would then capture the returns of the market, the total returns of the stock market, almost 100% of them, probably 98%. Uh, And, of course, I'm talking about the easy way to do that, which is the all-market index fund. You can own every company in America through a total stock market index fund. And if you like global, and I think there are some reasons to like global and some reasons to be a little scared about it, put 20% of your money or 25% of your money in an all-non-U.S. market fund, and you'll have a global portfolio with no cost and capture the global returns. That's what I mean by having, that's what I call the Adam Smith solution, nice for a capitalist, and that is look after your own interests and all will be well. It's going to take a lot of education to get that done, and therefore I have to go to the next remedy, which I have yet to find anybody in the industry who likes at all, who likes this one at all, and that is set up a federal standard of fiduciary duty, a federal law that demands of mutual fund and pension managers that they represent first and foremost the interest of their principals, P-A-L-S again, the mutual fund shareholders and pension beneficiaries, that they vote their proxies, that they have no conflicts of interest in the management of those portfolios, that it's a Uh, The mutual fund should be a company of the shareholder, by the shareholder, and for the shareholder, period. And we need that as a federal law because we make it into a state law. Let's say Delaware did it. Well, guess what? All the corporations would leave Delaware and go to... Maryland or something. But but isn't this already, I mean, isn't it already the case? I mean, aren't, aren't there already laws in effect like Glass-Steagall and other laws pertaining to financial services companies that, there that, are laws that mandate there is, this? There's no federal statute of fiduciary duty. There is, a, is that right? The, well, the Pension Protection Act, I can't remember the precise name of it, uh, calls for a standard of, of a fiduciary standard in running your 401k plan, but it doesn't focus on how you represent the shareholders. It's a duty to pick the best funds rather than how those funds are finally operated. And, uh, you know, there, there are hints around. Uh, you know, we have a prudent man rule in Massachusetts. But these things are, are overlooked. Uh, they're lost in some giant shuffle. And I think we need to come down hard with a federal statute that makes it crystal clear that mutual funds are to be run for their shareholders, first, last, and only. And pension funds are to be run for their beneficiaries, first, last, and only. And by the way, I wouldn't let uh, the state and local pension plans off the hook either. Well, they don't have these corporate conflicts of interest. They've got plenty of political conflicts of interest, too. So I'd just, if I was running things, if I was the czar of all this, I'd be down in Washington with a great big broom. (laughs) Maybe even a a sword or a pitchfork. Let me mention to our listeners that you're listening to Left Out on WRCT 88.3 FM, and we're talking to John C. Bogle, who is the former uh, CEO, founder and CEO of the Vanguard Group, who's written a very interesting book that we're discussing called The Battle for the Soul of Capitalism. Uh, and listeners, as ever, are welcome to give us, a, give us a call if they'd like at 268-9728 if you have a question for, for John Bogle. So, uh, so, Mr. Vogel, I, I wanted also to, to, to ask you a little bit something you touched on earlier, which is to do with um, the, uh, the investment industry and, in fact, the, the whole, this whole idea of speculation versus investment. And one of, the, one of the symptoms that anyone such as myself who's on the outside of it has noticed, and this was particularly prevalent in the most recent uh, stock market uh, bubble of about 10 years ago, 
um, was the way in which the numbers are finagled, like, for example, the idea of pro forma uh, uh, results from corporations coming out quarterly or, or eighthly or sixteenthly or minutely or whatever they come out these days, and uh, all the kind of, uh, these kind of figures of merit that are, we're supposed to be paying attention to that seem to drive the whole circus. And I wondered, you know, how to, I mean, I can, in one level, it's obvious how it all works, but another level, I don't see how this makes any sense. Well, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, let me just, for the fun of it, to make it clear, I think, to your listeners, uh, we'll talk about, we'll divide investors into two groups. One group is long-term investors. They don't trade with one another. And the other group, let's call it the other half of the market, is short-term speculators, and they trade with each other. It must be apparent to anybody, they all own the same stocks, each owns half of every stock. It must be apparent to everybody that if if those stocks go up over a period of time 50%, uh, that the long-term investors will earn a return of 50%, uh, total return over time of 50%. But it must be equally clear that the short-term speculators weren't earning like that, because every time they swap back and forth, there's a croupier, a broker, somebody in the middle, an investment banker, a mutual fund manager, and all that short-term stuff. Uh, you know, They're trading with each other. They can't possibly make more or less than 50% gross because they own the 50% portfolio. So they're going to earn probably... 35% over, say, a five-year period. That's, that's roughly what the difference would be. Uh, so it doesn't make any sense to trade for the short term. It's gambling. It's the folly of speculation where the wisdom of long-term investing is there for the taking. So uh, I, I had another uh, direction slightly to, that I wanted to well, pick up on a point that I heard you make in uh, your interview with Bill Moyers uh, about a month or so ago. Um, you were talking about the financial services industry, and uh, you you had apparently worked out the basically the amount of money that has going is going into that. And I can just quote uh, a little section of that interview. It says, "This is what you said: Our financial services companies make more money than our com- than our companies uh, than than, en- than our energy companies. No mean profitable business in this day and age. Plus, our healthcare companies they make almost as twice." Almost twice as much as our technology companies, twice as much as our manufacturing companies. We've become a financial service, a financial economy which has overwhelmed the productive economy to the detriment of investors and to the detriment ultimately of our society. So, I'm to say, I couldn't, say, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, I, this is something that I, I've had arguments with some friends of mine who are, you know, business oriented and, and, just you know, looking at all the machinations and all the complex financial uh, things that are going on, and I'm, I'm a computer scientist. Uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not a financial guy, but it just seemed to me that it, my intuition of the whole thing was, this has got to be you know, uh, what's what's coming out at the end? What is the product? What what is the good that 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 helps people? Where where are the where are the uh, you know. The, the 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 phones and the tools and the cars and 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 the 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 wiring and the that they're not doing any of that they're doing something else but yet it is absorbing this vast amount of our economy and and, and now you're telling me it's actually more profitable than all this than than energy than useful things than the useful yeah, I, stuff I believe the number is that the, uh, the profit of, profits of the financial service companies were I think two hundred and fifteen billion in twenty oh six and uh, I think it was around 110 billion for energy, and around uh, 90 billion, or maybe 100 billion for healthcare, and then manufacturing was, I think, around 70 billion, 
Uh, I think those are kind of the numbers that we're talking about. Huge numbers. So, what? what <clears throat> so how did we end up in this situation where it's sort of like I don't know. That's the right. What's a giant sucking sound? I mean, there's a river. <laughs> there's like a river of money, and they're just dipping their their uh, they're stuck sticking their pipes in and sucking the water out of that river. I mean, it, uh, it has to actually, come from somewhere. I mean, it's not it's not just uh, you know it's it's coming out of someone's pocket. Well, sure, sure, it's coming out of someone's pocket, and then and the reason it's not more self evident is this is a uh, our business system grows at the same rate our economy grows at. There seems to be well, the capitalism. I mean, you can imagine that that uh, if if uh, after tax profits run around, I believe the numbers are at eight percent of gross domestic product. It can't grow forever to 20% or something, and it can't be zero because no one would finance anything. So it, 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 the competition, the, the, just the very nature of capitalism, creative destruction, all those kind of things, seem to suggest that around 8% is about the right amount for corporations to earn. So, but when you get into the financial, so, so you have a growth trend. And in the long run, stocks have given a nominal return 100 years, past 100 years, but 9.5% a year. And what investors are getting out of that is probably about seven and seven to seven and a half percent net because they're not getting the full nine percent, right? Right. Uh, because of these costs, full nine and a half percent. So it's sort of the this sin is is camouflaged by this huge uh, this huge quilt of prosperity. Uh, you're getting you're not you're not getting money taken away from you. You're earning less than you should. Yeah. So so, but I mean, what I'm thinking about is. Um, if you just so so take 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 a hedge fund, uh, they're doing some complex financial instruments that I don't know if anybody can even understand them, uh, which are then believed to be valuable for some reason, and then these people make a tremendous amount of money, and that money comes out of other people's pockets somehow. But what do they actually? What? Well, I guess there are financial arguments, it's abstract arguments about the the. The resistance of no, not resistance of the efficiency of the market or something that these people are improving. But are those arguments at all viable? Well, not for everybody. In other words, you talk about hedge funds. I mean, some of the very big hedge funds have failed this year. Uh, But yes, if if the hedge fund, if if we if we had two industries, let's call them for the fun of it, the hedge fund industry and the mutual fund industry, and the hedge fund industry was making a trillion dollars a year excess returns then it would follow that the mutual fund industry was earning a trillion less in total returns. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it can't, the, more, the stock market is, in a sense, a, a, a closed system. Right. Uh, one guy's purchase is another guy's sale and vice versa. So, uh, of course, they're taking money out. Uh, some of them are worth it. Uh, I'm not sure how we ever got to the point where... Uh, did either of you make $139 million last year? Uh, no, I'm sorry. And I, 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 I missed that, that by a small margin. Either, just yeah. to be clear. I'll have but to if check. You didn't, you, if, if you didn't, you didn't rank among the top 25 hedge fund managers. Right. Think about that. Now, people paid for that. They got a positive return. But don't forget, the hedge funds make money on taking 20% of the total return. So if it's even positive, like if you make a 5% return, and it turns out to be $100 million, they're taking twenty million out of that, so it's a it's a compensation system that has worked. These I know many of these hedge fund managers. I know some of the best ones, and they're competent and able. But uh, they know they aren't all that way. And uh, there's a way. I mean, all this brain power, and they have great brain power. 
eventually I think will eliminate the ability to differentiate yourself that much in the market. And that is all the sophisticated brain power and quantitative stuff will eventually bring greater efficiency to the market. <clears throat> well, um, I guess we can... Um well, if you've got another couple of minutes, we can talk about a couple more things. I don't know what your schedule is. Yeah, I probably should yeah, maybe five more minutes. Okay, okay. that would be great. Okay. Uh, I, I recently read, and changing the subject somewhat, um, uh, I read an article um, was in um, Vanity Fair by Joseph Stieglitz. It's called The Economic Consequences of Mr. Bush. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this article. I have not read the article. I do quote Stieglitz at some length about the great uh, boom. Uh, the great bubble in my in the, my battle for the soul of capitalism. So uh, this this article, I mean, if, it's basically an attack on on the economic policies that that Bush has, has initiated and and carried out during his seven or six plus years uh, now. Right, and a related point that I want to make before you jump into that is, you know, you say, uh, Mr. Bogle, unsurprisingly, in the beginning of your book, you say that you're a lifelong Republican, and I must say that from my point of view, it's, it's refreshing to hear a Republican speaking what seems like sense when I read this book. But what has happened to the Republican Party or to the U.S. Uh, uh, in general uh, political system whereby we have these insane, what I would say are insane policies from uh, even the party of business? Uh, well, that's I think a lot of people feel, a lot of Republicans feel like I do. The party seems to be be leaving us before we can leave it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's not, you know, certainly it would be impossible to call the Republican Party the, par the party of fiscal probity any longer. Right, exactly. I mean, the deficits are enormous, greatly understated, uh, with no remedy in sight, uh, and, and no ability, and, and on top of that, for Congress to particularly function well. Uh, one of the biggest risks I see in in our society, is that our political system seems stuck, mired down, uh, unable to do very much, or certainly unable to make hard decisions, uh, particularly financial decisions, decisions on spending, and decisions on taxation. And it's very clear that the Republican tax policy has favored the very wealthy. Uh, and there's, there's just no way around the drop in this tax on dividends and capital gains. Uh, you know, you can argue till hell freezes over that 65% of the stock is held by, held by small investors. Uh, but, uh, I mean, 65% of investors are small investors, but they don't hold 65% of the stock. Uh -huh. mm. And the large investors, I think the top 10 to 1% of investors hold something like 30% of all the stock. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's that tax loophole that, that allowed the hedge funds managers... Uh, to get basically get away with a fifteen percent tax on what in some cases is well, as you mentioned hundreds of millions or even income even That's billions of dollars. It is unbelievable. I mean, where's the fairness in that? I mean, they 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 have these expensive lawyers and they can they can find holes, I suppose, in anything and uh, loopholes. I mean, I, I find it deeply disappointing. And then they take all that extra money and you know basically they they're going to say they get access to our congressman. Well, access we all know means a lot more than that. Uh, I, I read an article about one of these just the other day in the New York Times about one of these earmarks, and the company uh, contributed forty thousand dollars to some legislator, and he puts a, an earmark in there, and they get a uh, billion dollars. What's when a billion dollars is the return on the forty thousand dollar investment? What's the return on capital there? I can't even compute it. <laughs> it's not six percent. I'll tell you that. It's not twelve. Extraordinary. So, uh, well, I guess we can we can wrap up the interview. I, I just wanted to let you let you know um, 
that we'll be posting the interview on our website, leftout.info, in case you want to listen to it later, Jack Bogle. Okay. And uh, thanks a lot for, for so joining us. We're very happy okay, well, to have you. Ha- got me all stirred up. I hope <laughs> I'll be able to get to sleep tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you very much for appearing on Left Out. It's been delightful having you, uh, and thank you for your time. Uh, great, great to talk to you, and it's great to have a chance to express uh, some deeply held views. I very much enjoyed reading your book. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye. So we've been talking to John C. Bogle, the former, uh, the founder and former CEO of the Vanguard Group, who's written a very interesting new book called The Battle for the Soul of Capitalism, which we've been talking about for the last three quarters of an hour. And I encourage our listeners to uh, to pick it up and have a read. It's really uh, very interesting, and I find quite a refreshing perspective from someone who's really a titan of the financial services industry and speaks from a perspective the, the, that, I, that I certainly uh, don't have. And uh, so I've enjoyed reading it. So we're going to take a brief break, and uh, we'll be back in a few moments' time and talk about a few other things. Okay, we're back. Oh, we're back. Excuse me. Uh, listening to Left Out, we're having a few. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, not on the ball this evening. Uh, so welcome back to Left Out. You're listening to Left Out on WRCT 88.3 FM, reality-based independent radio. Uh, listeners are welcome to call at uh, 412-268-9728 or send electronic mail to bob at leftout.info, which we're monitoring during the program. So as we uh, we just before the break we were we had really a delightful conversation with John Bogle, former head of Vanguard, who was talking about his uh, his uh, points of view on uh, the soul of American uh, capitalism. And I encourage our readers to our listeners to follow up and have a look at his book. It's really a lot of fun. So other other so points well, I mean, today. of course, last week uh, was the um, uh, the vote on the um, the new attorney general. Oh, are you trying to give me an aneurysm? Yes, I want you. To, I want you to first. I want you to hear your opinion, and then and then have the aneurysm. So, uh, anyway, um, yeah. Well, I mean, it was just uh, it was just amazing listening to the testimony and and the the description of of his his, uh, his claim of not acknowledging that waterboarding is torture. Uh, his basically being um, agreeing with Bush's the unitary executive theories the. Uh, other illegal things that Bush has been doing going along with all of that. Of course, he must have agreed to that before Bush nominated him, that he would have to say that. But uh, they, they, they went through the whole thing. And then to have the um, some of our supposedly liberal senators going along with his, uh, ex- to agreeing with his nomination, Schumer and Feinstein, um, <coughs> going through that and then ju- justifying it uh, with the most lame, in my view, arguments, that uh, things like, well, if they passed a law against waterboarding, he would in- he would agree to enforce it. Well, his job is to enforce the law. So that he says he would enforce a law is like a completely it's, vacuous it's statement. He's the chief law enforcement officer of the of the United States, or uh, he is now. And that's and he yeah. was uh, being you know being uh, uh, <laughs> he was being nominated for that. Being uh, he was his purpose of his testimony was to determine his suitability for that. And the best he can come up with is that he might do his job if he really had to. I think the thing that's really, there are several aspects of this. One is to focus, which I'll come back on, is the particular issue about torture. But the the larger issue is simply what Mukasey made absolutely clear when he was on the Hill was that he's in Cheney's pocket. What was perfectly clear is the reason, the only reason, to not go along with, for example, the statement uh, that waterboarding is torture, which it evidently is. For example, uh, after World War One, there were prosecutions for uh, water uh, for waterboarding as, as by the United States as a matter of of, of, of international law, in as a War violation II. of international yeah. World War Two of the Japanese as well. Right. It 
perfectly clear-cut that this procedure, specific procedure, not to mention many others, are completely are completely unlawful. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he make it? Because you know the question was the question was posed to him whether this was torture, and he was like, oh, he didn't want to uh, disclose, you know, uh, CIA operations and methods or some words like this. Well, you know, but the thing is. You have to understand that our senators were going along with the charade because the the obvious response there is they weren't asking him whether the CIA is currently engaging in waterboarding or please, you know, disclose secrets about the operation CIA. The question is, is this procedure against the law or is it not? It's a straightforward question. He's a lawyer. He's 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 asking to be the uh, the attorney general of the United States now is the attorney general of the United States and he's unable to put together a, a, a statement about whether it is against the law or not. Yeah. It's it's completely ludicrous. But so there's two sides to this. One is it's clear that he's in Cheney's pocket. He wasn't going to admit to that. Why? Because it could open up uh, Cheney himself personally or Rumsfeld or the rest of these clowns in the Bush administration to prosecution, eventual prosecution, which I dearly hope that they are prosecuted for. But uh, I'll be uh, you know. I'm sure I'll go to my grave without the satisfaction of seeing that. But uh, that's the first, the first reason. It's completely clear. So the guy's corrupt. I mean, he's another Alberto Gonzalez. He's just uh, he's just another henchman. We're supposed to have the, the Justice Department. is supposed to be independent of the White House. It's perfectly obvious he takes orders from the White House. Okay? We should understand this. Right. Second thing is the Senate, uh, they, they go through the charade of, you know, saying all these stern things, you know, but they don't ask him any serious questions, and they don't hold him to it. So as you mentioned a moment ago, that's uh, something that really enraged me, was here we have two senators from the most liberal states in, 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 in the country, or among them, New York and California, where they have, the reason I mention that is simply because Schumer and Feinstein's seats are safe, okay, they are popular well, Feinstein was elected in 2006. Uh, Schumer might remember. have been 2004, possibly. I'm not positive, but in any case, is in no, da- no danger of losing losing his seat. And moreover, would be representing the overwhelming majority of opinion of his own constituency, which is what he's elected to do. Um, the two of them decide that Mukasey is actually okay, that he's actually a fine fellow, and he's no Alberto Gonzalez. This is outrageous this is absolutely outrageous of course arlen specter was also in favor of it but uh you know as much as i well as he I, said he stood up there I, and he said these things he said the truth about him he's very disturbed by this and that and the other thing that yeah. he said but i'm going to vote for him anyway oh he was personally assured and that's what schumer said he was assured in private you know that he's going to do going to do the right thing well why can't he why can't he assure us in public then why can't he say it under oath on the hill if uh, we're having these assurances. And, you know, so the point is you say, well, um, y- y- you ask yourself, I mean, is, is, is Schumer a fool? You know, no, of course he's not a fool. He's, pl- he's playing along with this. Does he, why, you know, why in, he his, along in his own it? millions I mean, of dollars? None of the excuses make any sense. It's like, a really They say, well, we have, we have to have new leadership in the Justice Department. That, that department is in big trouble. Well, is this guy going to be leadership? It, 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 it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. The only argument uh, that Schumer made, and I also have a, an, a, an op-ed piece here from the L.A. Times by Diane Feinstein. Now, she's from San Francisco. Do you think there's anybody in San Francisco who was in favor of, 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 uh, of, of approving Mukasey? Do you think you could find anyone? Do you think you could find more than 10% of the population in San Francisco? Well, it is a statewide office, of course. It is a statewide office, but it's a California. It's nevertheless overwhelming and Democrat. We're looking at an administration that's the most unpopular administration 
since measuring the unpopular mm-hmm. administrations, I mean, uh, George Bush has even exceeded the the nadir set by uh, set by Richard Nixon at the uh, right before his resignation, and 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 there, and she's from California, San Francisco, no less, and and she votes for this in the same Chuck, Chuck Schumer in New York. The, why? the point, yeah, the why. The question is why. Well, the, as I've often said and left out and I've and said in many conversations, obviously there are inclusions on all, on all of this, right? Because why did, you know, we can go on and on, why did all the Democrats vote for the, you know, the war powers authorization? You know, this is completely ludicrous. Uh, or authorization of use of military force, excuse me. Uh-huh, um, right. You know, of, for which there, you know, the concept does not exist. The Constitution provides for declaration of war or not. Okay, doesn't provide for authorization of use of military force at the discretion of the president. Well, but that's a tradition that started back yeah, in Vietnam. It's a tradition, yeah, yeah. That, or before, uh, even before. But yes, uh, so well, let's not go off on that tangent. Although it's another one that will give me a give me a, an infarction. Is is the uh, so going back to the point? Yeah, why is uh, why is Schumer going along with this? Well, he 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 published a shameful op-ed piece in the New York Times. I don't have in front of me explaining it, and the, his argument was self-contradictory. It was absolutely ludicrous, including this assurance that well, he's talked to him privately, and you know everything's on the up and up. You know he's going to do the right thing. He told me himself. I mean, this is the Bush administration. You know, uh, the, haven't haven't these guys learned a single thing about these uh, about these lying manipulators yet? I mean. And, and anyway, you, you know perfectly well, Schumer is not a dumb guy. And when he's, you know, making a $10 million investment, you know, of his own funds, you can be sure he doesn't have a little private conversation off to the side being assured that the right thing's going to happen. He's got it in writing, okay? He's got it under oath and is legally binding, okay? And so who is he to be right. telling us that he's using, you know, taking uh, the responsibility as a senator? The other argument is that, you know, that, well, uh, you know, Bush would have appointed somebody worse if we didn't get him. This is the best the best we can hope for. And, well, he's not Al- Alberto Gonzalez. That was the argument. That's the standard we, 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 we've been lowered to is he's not Alberto Gonzalez. That's why we should approve him. I mean, uh, the, the, the sense of this, uh, it's utterly senseless. Wasn't there other cases or weren't there other cases in the past where the – the, the 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 there were deals made like that uh, the, they would approve the the attorney general nominee if he were to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate something or other hmm. weren't there deals like that I think there was some um, uh, I don't know about them but it, yeah if you but, do, but they could have they made those kinds of or pushed for those kind of deals or something I don't know the Democrats who are who control the Congress are obviously in cahoots on most of the main issues they're not doing anything about ending the Iraq war they're making a big charade blah 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 but they vote for the they vote the money. Did you hear about the latest? But there was some some glimmering of hope with uh, Pelosi's statement, right? About the latest, Tell they're, me. Putting, they're putting forth a funding bill for the Iraq War, which has like fifty billion dollars additional money for the war, but some conditions about uh, withdrawal. It must be, I think, by the end of two thousand eight or something. Uh, there must be some some amount of withdrawal of certain types of you know military, the military part of the. Uh, I think that's what it is. I mean, this, I'm talking off the top of my head right now. A, read and, the fine and, print, and B, I'll <clears throat> believe it when I see it. Okay, but then the, the then the claim, but the, but the claim was that they were that Nancy Pelosi apparently said that when they uh, that they're putting that forward, and if he vetoes that with those very mild conditions, that's going to be it. They're not putting any more money in for Iraq. I'll believe it when I I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, so there's the same thing. Speaking of Diane Feinstein, so she voted for McKay. Another was uh, supporting telecom amnesty. If you can believe that, oh, right? Okay, 
again, this is an absolutely ludicrous situation. The, the telcos, uh, to, as far as uh, we can tell from everything that is publicly known and from their behavior, it seems perfectly obvious, deliberately, willfully broke the law, uh, starting in, well, it's a, it's not a question is exactly when it started. It may have been as soon as 2001, as soon as Bush took office. It may have been as late as the end, early 2001, I mean, or it may be as late as the end of 2001 or early 2002. But in any case, from that point onward, all of the telephone companies, it seems, Not all with of them. one possible yes. exception, exactly, um, were were, and that's a matter of dispute because uh, they're, they're being prosecuted. The CEO is being prosecuted for insider trading or something, which he claims is retributive. But uh, never mind that. Uh, we're, we're we're participating in domestic wiretapping. It's clear that this is what is going on, uh, and and this was illegal. If it's illegal, it's illegal. What is this, you know, making it legal after the fact? Is amnesty, what amnesty? You know, the, the Diane Feinstein in her uh, comedy uh, comment is more or less, oh, feel sorry for them, you know, what were they going oh, to do? right, this is a completely bogus argument defending them to say, well, they can't, they can't defend themselves in the lawsuits because this information is secret. Well, that's a completely nonsensical completely statement. Completely nonsensical. Always is done in that situation. And moreover, they had legal recourse at the time. They could say, we're very happy to do it with a court order. That's all there is to it. The legal procedure was completely in place. There is, was, and is not any sort of obstacle to any kind of wiretapping, provided that it is done with a search warrant in in uh, in uh, in accord with the Constitution of the United States and Anglo-American jurisprudence for the last 800 years. Well, on that on that note, uh, we've run out of time, uh, so we'll have to wrap up for today. Thanks very much to our producer uh, uh, John Katruba, and uh, thanks very much to John Bogle for appearing on today's program. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back in two weeks' time. <laughs>